This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. There has been a recent explosion of memoirs and autobiographies. These genres help to bridge history with personal experience. Writing can be a way to reflect on world events and externalities through the lens of personal experience. In this way, writing helps with collective memory. They shape what we know about the world and our place in it by drawing connections between the minutiae of daily life and the broad sweep of history. People from marginalized groups have a unique opportunity to reflect on historic events through personal writings and reflections. Even large-scale events like the global pandemic can be analyzed through the experience of one person's life. Today, we discuss writing as social commentary. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. You know, if you listen to the show semi-regularly, that I love doing book reviews and enjoy talking to authors, not just about their work, but why they write the way that they write and what it is that compels them to put pen to paper, not least because I struggle to even write the monologues for this show. So my guest today is one such emerging author. Nicole Salter is the author of a new autobiography. It came out in November 2021. It's called Warrior in the Mud, Childhood Trauma, Adult Drama, and Reclaiming My Toxic Life. Nicole is also a really super hardworking mom of two kids and a small business owner in Toronto. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Julita. It's great to be here. Why did you decide that now was a good time to put pen to paper and write your book? Well, I had been working on a book before the pandemic actually hit. So uh, I've written all my life. I've uh, been published a couple of times just in short form. And I was I worked as a content writer for many years. And I was so tired of, you know, just constantly churning out content for other small businesses and my own fiction. So I was working on some fiction and just working on different things. And it became apparent to me at a certain point that, you know, truth can be stranger than fiction. So Mm -hmm. I have led what I hope to be, or I think is a fairly interesting and maybe unusual life in some ways. And I decided that now was the time to really just write that memoir And uh, the events of the pandemic actually propelled me into doing that and to taking it very seriously that this was a really important, you know, period in history and a very important period in my personal history. Mm -hmm. So it was time to get it done. Yeah, let's pick up on that because you're right. One of the things you sort of open the book with is a is a reference to uh, the fact that your relationship and your marriage of almost 10 years comes to an abrupt and end that you just didn't see coming. And so just as the city prepares to go into lockdown in March 2020, you're dealing with an incredibly messy separation. Tell us about how the pandemic played into your divorce. Well, you're giving me chills when you describe everything so eloquently. Even your monologue was incredible. And the way that you just put that so succinctly, 
um, it's actually giving me chills because that was one of the most horrific times in my life. And there have been many, but the sudden, the suddenness with which all this occurred, um, the pandemic did definitely play a big role. I've, an, I've analyzed it endlessly, but I do believe that the pandemic uh, precipitated and sort of gave my ex-husband maybe the, the push or the reason that he had been looking for to bring our marriage to an end. Um, I obviously played a part in that. The marriage was toxic for a long time, but suddenly what happened was without, you know, pretty much any warning, obviously the world locked down, the children were home from school, and my business simultaneously exploded. So I was extremely busy. I was completely preoccupied. I wasn't really thinking about the relationship. I hadn't actually thought about the relationship for a very long time. I had neglected to see the signs of what were going on, uh, what was happening in the relationship. And the impact that this had with everything shutting down was that all of a sudden I found myself in a legal situation as well. And I'm not sure if this is still the case, but certainly for years and at the time, the courts were closed, you know, therapy offices were closed. I felt completely isolated and alone without any of the resources that I normally would have had. You know, people weren't even friends, obviously, you know, weren't having people over. There was no, there was seemingly no escape. My kids were with me 24-7. I'm trying to work. And uh, the the response to the pandemic was so extreme. And the, the fear was so great out there that I just felt incredibly alone and, and without resources to deal with what was going on in my own home. And not to minimize what I went through, but I know it was a lot worse for so many people, you know, um, people living in domestic violence situations. They, there simply was no escape. Speaking of domestic violence, it is one of the many stories that have emerged during the pandemic, this sharp increase in domestic violence and abuse and the isolation that many women feel. Earlier in our conversation, you said that you've led in a lot of ways a very unique life. But do you think in writing the memoir, there's a degree to which you might have felt that your life and its individual circumstances may nonetheless have been a reflection of a broader pattern or broader institutions? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of people living lives of, of quiet desperation. And I'm just going to talk within my own sort of pay grade here. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of people that even people that I know who are living pretty comfortably middle-class lives, you know, fellow moms who, you know, are, are sort of puttering along, you know, in their marriages, in their careers, who um, nevertheless are, I would say, unhappy in their relationships. And the pandemic suddenly being forced by the policies to, you know, shelter in place and, and remain in the home put tr a tremendous amount of stress even on these marriages where I would say that just suffered from maybe benign neglect, where the, the parties had grown apart, suddenly, you know, really sharp divisions were, were being noticed. And I also know it brought a lot of people together, but I would say that overwhelmingly, in my experience anyway, these divisions were only sharpened. And, um, you know, I do donate to a number of women's shelters and, and sort of organizations that benefit women who are victims of actual, you know, domestic abuse and violence in their homes. And from all the literature that they send me, you know, it was a real crisis because sometimes the only places that women could feel free would, would be to go out to the grocery store, would be to take their kids to the park, you know, or 
visit with friends. And all of that was just stripped away. So I do think it is part of a, a much broader issue, yes. And when we think about your book, I don't want to in any way convey the impression that the book is only about your experience during the pandemic, because it's clearly not. It deals with the entirety of your life up to this point, nor mm-hmm. is it just about a failed marriage. In your book, you talk about addictions, you talk about prostitution, you talk about you know leaving home as a teenager and starting out on your own. Some really controversial topics come up in the book, if we can, if we can be so bold. How did you wrestle with the, with the decision to put that on paper? Was there a moment when you said to yourself, Nicole, I don't know if I want people to know about my personal, my business, or, you know, what if my kids read this like 10 years down the road? What are they going to think of me? How did you tackle those internal conversations? Well, there, there were lots of such internal conversations, you know, um, as I think I over-examine myself, my thinking, my motives to a fault, I've been trained to do that. I spent almost 16 years in a 12-step fellowship, and that's what my next book is about. And the the level of self-examination that has to go on um, is intense. And also, you know, I'm a historian. I'm a bit of a historian. Um, I'm a literate person who, you know, reads a lot. So I was very conscious of all of these things. Do I want that out there? You know, what are my motives? What am I trying to do here? Is this about taking revenge or casting blame on people or, you know, playing into some kind of victimhood narrative. You know, I, I felt that in order to disclose, in order to tell my story, I had to disclose things that, that were going to be very uncomfortable. They're very uncomfortable to me. These issues are by no means settled, written in stone in my mind. And, you know, I had to, in order to tell the story, I had to reconcile myself to the fact that this is, what happened. And this was my perspective um, on what happened. So as for my kids reading it, <laughs> fortunately, I think TikTok has taken care of uh, the fact that they're, they're probably not going to be reading memoirs anytime soon. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't let them anywhere near it. They're only nine and 10. So I, I figure I've got time. And um, I am reconciled, however, enough to my past to be able to say, okay, it needs to be told. The truth isn't always pretty. And, you know, I don't mind other people reading about this if they learn something and if it helps someone. One of the, as I mentioned off the top there, I've done a lot of book reviews and I've done a lot of memoirs. And that seems to be something of a narrative arc where people start out and they say, well, my life was reasonably good. And then something unforeseen happened and it things went off the rails. And then I got myself um, you know, put back together. And now we're all living happily ever after. Do you... <laughs> Uh, sort of subscribe to that same pattern? Have you achieved healing? Are you in a good place now? Or are you still a work in progress? I'm in a much better place, but I'm definitely still a work in progress. And honestly, my hats are off to people who waited and took the time. You know, I could have written this memoir in, in 10 years, and the outcome in terms of happily ever after could be very different. But I was writing this a year into the extremely disruptive and and sort of cataclysmic events of my life. And I felt that was important because one of the things um, about trauma is that the brain has a very funny way of dealing with trauma in that we tend to uh, repeat mistakes. And I think that's a theme in the book is that, you know, things didn't start out rosy for me um, whatsoever. I had what I would 
what I still mostly characterize as a very unhappy childhood. I thought that my liberation came when I moved out, as you said, when I was a teenager and I could suddenly, you know, make my own choices and decisions. And I pretty much just dug myself into a deeper hole and was completely unaware for most of it that I was doing so. Totally unaware of of the long-term consequences of the actions that I was taking and the things that were happening. So I think it was important for me to actually get that on paper. It was part of the healing process to look at why that might have been the case. Like, why would somebody who has her wits about her in many ways um, just keep succumbing to the same mistakes and sort of falling prey to the same types of fantasies that just lead nowhere? I like to do a bit of a, a reading and get authors to read a, an excerpt. So, Nicole, you've got a bit of an excerpt from your book today. Just set it up for us and take it away. Okay, sure. So, in the book, basically, uh, the, one of the main themes of the book is is looking at mental health issues and how the sins of the fathers really do sort of descend onto the sons, to, so to speak, that essentially I was raised by a narcissistic parent and unfortunately that led to a host of mental health issues and and other issues that followed me throughout my life the parent that i wasn't raised by because he was incarcerated for most of my adult life until his death was my father Mm -hmm. and so i don't know as much about him but i do take a look at him as well so i'll just go ahead and read um, Mm -hmm. a little excerpt from chapter three dream a little dream of me Depending on who you talk to, my dad was a charmer, a black sheep, a criminal, a visionary, a compulsive liar, and a good-hearted but naive man. He was well over six feet tall, dashing, and possessed of perfectly square white teeth despite a complete lack of dental care. He flashed them frequently, bestowing hundred-watt smiles on friend and foe alike, as if he found the little things in life unusually exhilarating. At first, he stole food to keep body and soul together after his parents died of alcoholism or cancer or domestic violence or whatever else kills the sons and daughters of sharecroppers in 1950s Alabama. While my mother's parents were ever so slowly on the way up in society, at least in terms of financial stability, my father's parents were already long gone, leaving young Jerry to lie his way into every job he would ever get. Can you pick Cotton Boy? A potential employer had once asked him, gesturing at the two-row combine that would one day become an instrumental piece of machinery in the second biggest diaspora the South had ever seen. Yes, sir, why not, my father replied, and confidently climbed aboard the mechanized picker for the first time. He could learn anything by watching. Eventually, through observation and imitation, he would pretend to be an educated, sophisticated city man with skills he could not possibly acquire, but could make you believe he'd had forever. He loved to work and by my mother's standards was obsessed with it, although she allowed that blacks did have to work twice as hard as everybody else just to get anywhere in life. In his 20s, my dad moved north to the promised land of New York City, only to find that the streets weren't exactly paved with gold. Nevertheless, the opportunities for a clever, hardworking man who didn't mind stretching the truth far exceeded anything available to him back home, where he was still expected to step into the ditch to make way for the folks that mattered. In New York, he founded AAE, African American Enterprises, a chain of shoe stores that sold hush puppies and pumas before they became iconic brands. He also worked for a publication called The Monthly Review, from which he embezzled money. I remember the word embezzled because to my five-year-old ears, it was a funny word, like bamboozled. 
All the time, he was putting in the kind of long, productive hours that allowed him to park a snazzy maroon Lincoln Continental in front of our building. He still stole, either because he couldn't stop or for the sheer hell of it. There was the night he ruined an expensive new suit by stealing a roast from the butcher shop. The meat juices dripped down his sleeve as he presented it to my mother, and I remember her panicked voice repeating that nothing in her vast arsenal of cleaning products would get bloodstains out of silk. Her Christian Dior kimono was another five-finger bargain, unfortunately cut for a much taller, slimmer woman. My law-abiding, God-fearing mother was mortified, but resigned herself to the role of a sort of mob wife, accepting the stolen goods into our tiny bachelor apartment on Ocean Avenue without too much protest. That's your dad, and he is in a lot of ways a very colorful character and definitely one of the more lighthearted passages in the book. Your dad... Uh, eventually, of course, not to get to hopefully not to give away too much of the book, but your dad eventually gets uh, arrested for robbing a bank and ends up spending a life sentence in prison. And you you talk about a couple of times when you go to visit him in prison. Uh, you talked a little bit about the dynamic uh, between your parents, and I want to pick up on that because your father was black and your mother is of Italian heritage. So you grew mm-hmm. up mixed race in New York, and of course later on in Toronto. What was that like for you? Um, it was really tough. <laughs> I don't think it had to be. I think it was harder than it had to be, strictly speaking, because, I mean, I am old, but I'm not that old. I was born in 78, and things were already starting to change. Um, in the U.S., it's a lot more pronounced, or it was then anyway, the um, the racial lines. You know, you're either black or white, and mixed-race people commonly say that, you know, we fit into neither world Mm -hmm. so that that could have been difficult it didn't have to be as difficult as it was i think because we were so isolated um you know there were no there were no relatives at all so there were certainly no relatives on the italian side i was never allowed to be um around any other black people i didn't have black friends i didn't really have any friends because i was kept you know very sheltered and, and smothered and sort of isolated when we moved to toronto it was a complete, completely different because here, um, any any people of you know black heritage who are who I encountered anyway were either from an island, you know, like Jamaica or Barbados or um, so you know some other uh, Caribbean West Indian descent, or they were African. So I had nothing in common culturally with them, and I went to a school. I went to a series of schools that actually were largely Asian. So. You know, I, I definitely always felt like an outsider. And, and it was tough because, I mean, I had so all these external experiences sort of, of racism and, and of oppression, perhaps, you know, through the media and even through my personal life. But mostly, interestingly enough, my, my mother was quite racist, um, you know, towards black people. And I think instilled a lot of, a lot of that in me that I'm, I'm not good enough and I'm going to have to work twice as hard and, and just be twice as good as everyone else in order to get anywhere at all in life. There's this one moment in the book where your mom sort of holds your palms out and says, you know, if you look at it just this way, she's almost white. So you've got a little (laughs) bit of internalized uh, racism happening there. Your mom, and to an extent, your grandmother, mama, they're, they're the primary caregivers for you, especially after you move back to Toronto and your father is now in prison. Describe your relationship with your mother and how that relationship may have impacted the choices you meant you you went on to make as an adult? Wow, well, it's hard to know where to begin because I've been through so many iterations with this ranging from, 
as a child and an adolescent, probably into my early 20s, um, just complete, absolute hatred of her, which is, which is hard to say. It's a lot less hard to say than it was when I was that age. Um, you know, there's a tremendous stigma against talking any sort of throwing shade on your mother, okay? Mm. Um, you know, basically, a lot of the time, you know, the narrative is that domestic abuse is committed by men, you know, that if you have an abusive father and you hate your dad and you go to school and you say, I hate my dad, he beats my mom or he does whatever, that's acceptable. But if you say, I hate my mother, I remember saying that to a young schoolmate and just the look of just shock and horror on her face. Uh, we revere motherhood. We make, we make being a mother incredibly hard in our society, but yet we hold them to this impossible standard, but yet you can never say that. Now, because of the mental health conversation and the, especially specifically the narcissism conversation, which I was very late to that party, but it gives a name for people who are just so incredibly wrapped up in their own needs and who instrumentalize other people. And that was the relationship with my mom. It was completely codependent, completely enmeshed. I was not allowed to have friends or hobbies or any, or even my own thoughts. My own wishes were not ever, and I really can say ever, <laughs> sort of taken into account. It wasn't just the usual. I mean, I'm a mom now, and I have to say no to my kids all the time. I have to discipline them. I don't believe in being best friends with your child, but, but I do believe that they, they have to make choices, and I do believe that what they think and feel matters. And I think that's a cornerstone of parenthood, and I did not have that with my mom, but at the same time, I was completely dependent on her because there was no one else. You know, my grandmother was sort of out of the picture in terms of infirmity pretty early on, and she had no power before that anyway in the household, right? The household was ruled by my mother, and th there was um, an astonishing, like, a, a lack of freedom that I would consider just astonishing today. Couldn't, I, I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't happen today, but it would be so much more difficult for it to happen today because mm -hmm. there was just no intervention. There were no other influences, so... I became very much like her in a lot of ways. I took on a lot of traits. I only did what, you know, was acceptable to her. And then in my 20s, when I entered uh, addiction recovery, you know, forgiveness is just a huge part of the 12-step program, and it's sort of a requirement. So I did reconnect with my mom at that point. But by the time I had my first baby, I had to go no contact with her, and we haven't actually spoken since. So... That's, uh, that's, not a, that's not really a positive message, but it was something that I needed to do for myself and for my children. And there's a lot of people who don't speak to their mothers, but we don't come out and say that we don't speak to our mothers because yeah. motherhood is revered in our society. I know we haven't touched on the majority of your book, which is excellent, but I will encourage everyone to pick it up and read it. It's a it's a real gem because there's so many books that get published every year and it was nice that this one landed on, on the desk. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we can get a hold of your book. Is it available electronically or do you only get hard copies? Oh, it is available in every conceivable format that money can buy. So <laughs> lucky for your readers. Um, basically, it's on Amazon, Kindle, Smashwords, Apple, every format. So basically, if you go to my website, which is Nicole Martin Salter Author, Dot com. Basically, you can go there, you can purchase the books through the website, you can look them up on Amazon, on Chapters Indigo, and uh, purchase it in a variety of formats. Nicole, thank you very much for chatting with us about your book today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Nicole Salter is the author of Warrior in the Mud, Childhood Trauma, Adult Drama, 
and Reclaiming My Toxic Life, which you heard is available in a number of uh, formats on all available platforms. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks a lot for listening. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid and the manager for AMI Audio is Andy Frank. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.